From the American Sociological Review. Actually, let's skip that. Now, since it would be an obvious advantage for sociologists to know what psychologists are doing and vice versa, it might be worthwhile to bridge the gap by translating certain scientific papers into standard American. Usually, this kind of suggestion is being made by people who want to make fun of scientific language or quote-unquote debunk it. I don't mean it this way. I don't see why scientists shouldn't use specialized language as a sort of shorthand among themselves. But on the other hand, I think that translation within a language may be just as important as translation from one language to another. This common lack of... Let me say that again. It is true, of course, that after simplification, it often turns out that the emperor has no clothes on. That's a common thing to happen, and there are plenty of such examples in this book. The reason is, I think, that it is easier for most people to juggle vague and empty words than to be concrete and specific in what they say. This Gresham's Law of Language seems practically irresistible to half-educated people and school children. As one English teacher says, adolescents in high school manifest an almost incurable tendency to indulge in highfalutin abstractions. Since their learning has been chiefly of a verbal nature, they proudly parade the fruits of their schooling by displaying it at every turn their mastery of hallowed stereotypes. Unquote. I think training the simplification methods might be a good antidote for that. Recently, a movement has been making headways that tries to go much further. Those who believe in semantics are fighting against the tyranny of words in general and have denounced all abstractions as meaningless fictions. Here is a typical paragraph from a book on semantics. The man on the street who says there quote-unquote ain't no justice speaks more truly than he knows. There has never been any such thing. Justice is a fiction, along with its fellows, friendship, discipline, democracy, liberty, socialism, isolationism, and appeasement. You, can't, you cannot point to their reference. End of excerpt. Now that, it seems to me, doesn't get anybody anywhere. To say that all these big words are abstractions is simply a truism. Anybody can look up justice on the dictionary and find that it was formed by adding T to the Latin word just parentheses, right, to make it an adjective and then adding ice to make it a noun. In other words, 
most parts of that word don't mean anything, but are just empty grammatical gadgetry. However, since our language happens to be built that way, we cannot just go ahead and banish all those words from our speech, which seems to be the dream of the semantics, rather semanticists. Also, we would have to withdraw an arbitrary line somewhere and say, this is a fiction and this is not, and to do that, we would have to accept the language is a heap of words fallacy I talked about before. Otherwise, there is no reason why we should stop at weeding out the big abstractions everybody recognizes as such anyway. Why not also throw out but, like, and though, or those chief troublemakers among the little words and slash or, if any, and unless. In other words, what semantics adds up to is simply that our ordinary language is a poor instrument of thought and communication, and that we shouldn't take its devices too seriously. I thoroughly agree with the semanticists on this point. In fact, I cannot imagine anybody doing any rewriting and simplifying without realizing that language is at best a crude and arbitrary system of symbols and that we cannot understand anything as long as we, may, we mistake words for things. This kind of error is the source of most prejudices and irrational arguments. Let me quote just one example from the article on theology on the Encyclopedia Britannica. The great doctors from Tertullian to Aquinas who have expounded Trinitarian doctrine were feeling for a mode of being intermediate between what can be denoted by a noun and what can be denoted by an adjective, such as an attribute or a relation. Since human experience knows of no such mode of being and the conception of it cannot, be elucidated by any analogy, these teachers have recognized that, in the last resort, they were dealing with mystery or with what transcends the limits of the human mind to comprehend or to conceive. What do you think a Chinese would think of this passage or anyone else whose native language does not differentiate between nouns and adjectives? Surely, he would diagnose it a pure nonsense, as a typical example of mistaking words, or in this case the syntax of Western languages, for the things themselves. This passage deals with medieval scholasticism, whose modern followers, the neo-scholasticists, are the chief mistakers of words for things these days. But they are not the only ones by any means. This seems to be a vast number of people who have to be told that as Robert Louis Stevenson puts it, quote, the world was made before the English language and seemingly upon a different design. This common lack of understanding for alien languages and ways of thinking brings us to the problem of an international language. 
I am one of those people who think that English has already won the race and that sooner or later it will be officially adopted as the world language. But that doesn't settle the question of what kind of English is going to be used. If English can be spoken or written on many different levels of abstraction or difficulty, then naturally the adoption of just English wouldn't do and a specific level, say fairly easy, should be chosen for use on international meetings and documents. I know that this is just a dream. Nobody will ever stop diplomats from using the complex idiom known as diplomatic language. But even so, the linguistic approach to international documents might help. It would at least make us realize the level of abstraction of certain international agreements. In other words, the degree to which they are agreements at all. Maybe a linguistic analysis of the Atlantic Charter would have made it less of a shock to the world when it turned out that the Charter was an agreement on words rather than deeds, or as Churchill said in his speech on India, that it does not try to explain how the broad principles proclaimed by it are to be applied to each and every case which will have to be dealt with when the war ends. Unquote. The use of fairly easy English for international affairs would mean nothing else but the use of conservational, rather conversational, everyday language for settling arguments. As everybody knows, only the thrashing out of things around a conference table is apt to produce agreements that really work. In other words, colloquial, easily understandable language is the outward sign of the use of democratic, peaceful methods of settling disputes. This holds true in domestic as well as in international affairs, in fact, Democracy could be defined as government by plain talk, or in the words of John Dewey, quote, the heart and the strength of the democratic way of living are the processes of effective give-and-take communication, of conference, of consultation, of exchange and pool of experiences, of free conversation, if you will.